0: Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Welcome to Fast Talk, episode 98, a bonus episode, question and answer with Coach Connor and I. We're going to discuss intervals. The execution thereof. We're going to talk about dirty of training. We're going to talk about muscle fiber types and recruitment today. We love all of the questions we've been getting from both our email address and from our voicemail. That's fasttalk at fastlabs.com, or our voicemail is 719 800 2112. Please keep sending those great questions to us. One thing I want to mention, again, we launched Grant Holicky's show Off Course last week, and we want you to go check that out. There are several episodes up already, and coming soon will be episodes with Meredith Miller, Lance Haydet, Emerson Arante, and many others. Check it out. One other thing I'd like to mention is our newsletter that we've started and have going out now. To sign up for that, check us out at FastLabs.com. Let's get into the question, shall we? First one comes from Peter Burkhart from Lebanon, New Hampshire. Comes from email, and I will read it to Coach Connor as we speak. I know you did a full episode on performing intervals. The takeaway being, keep them simple, execute well. But I still don't have a good sense of how hard a good set of intervals should be and what it should feel like. For example... If I'm doing a 4x8 minute interval riding on Zwift in erg mode, so it is easy to hold a fixed power, should I set the power for, quote, legs on fire, barely able to complete the last one? Or a more conservative, quote, solid workout, let's go get bagels? Should heart rate be relatively constant, interval to interval, or is it normal for heart rate to climb as you progress through the set? For context, i'm a 57 year old male recreational rider experimenting with using these for my low volume of high intensity no
1: more than once per week
0: trevor what do you say
1: so first peter thanks for a great question and we have been getting lots of emails lots of voicemails thanks to everybody continue to be really impressed by the quality of these questions Uh, i love this one and this gets into that art of training and it's part of why even though i've got a list of Two, 300 different interval workouts I could do personally I only have about eight that I, I go to pretty regularly and the reason being it takes a long time to learn how to do a, an interval right so there is no one rule on here's what should happen with your heart rate here's what should happen with your power here's how it should feel that's interval by interval by interval workout so I can answer all those questions for one particular workout, but then another workout might be a completely different answer. Mm -hmm. So for example, I have two workouts that involve five minute intervals. One is a workout that I do in the winter, which is five by five minutes with one minute recoveries. For those, I'm never going all out. I don't let my heart rate break my my threshold heart rate very very Mm -hmm. much so my threshold heart rate's right around 172 if i start hitting 174 i back down so i finish that workout and go that was hard but it doesn't kill me Mm -hmm. i also have five minute hill repeats that i do in the season that's more of a vo2 max workout and that's i want to be feeling like i'm going to throw up by the end of every interval Mm -hmm. fun. they're different purposes so with every interval to start to answer those questions that Peter's asking, you first have to start with, what's the purpose of this workout? And when I think purpose, I think about what's the energy systems that you're trying to hit. That really guides what's the right intensity. How should it feel? Also ask, what's the time of year? I'm personally not a big believer that if you're starting to do intervals in December and you're not racing until till May... I don't think at that point in the years you'd be doing anything that should be making you feel like you're going to throw up. Right. That might be a little too hard. Right. Later, as you're getting close to the race season, having those intervals that you really have to struggle can be really important. So you have to think about all these things and that's really going to direct how you approach the intervals. So going back, he was talking about the four by eight minute work, uh, intervals. Uh, we've brought these up a lot in the show. I do these. I love these. It's, a, it's a, my, one of my favorite kind of January, February workouts. So I'm actually doing them right now. Bread and butter about to start interval, doing them. you'd call them. If you ate bread and butter, that is, which you don't. I don't eat bread and butter. So that's why I do the interval. Yeah, that's how I get my <laughs> bread and butter. So four by eights. Now, first of all, I, I emailed a response to Peter. And what I did was I sent him screenshots of two sets of four by eights that I've done. So mm-hmm. we'll put these on the website. Yep. We'll also post them on social media. So if you're listening right now and you're really interested, go to our website, fastlabs.com, go to the podcast section for this episode and we'll have those images up there. We'll also have them by, by this point on our social media. Yep, These are two four by eight workouts that I did. One was, I, I was very happy with my execution. One was horrific execution, in my opinion. That said, when you look at them, you will see differences, but it's not shocking differences. And that's what I mean by interval workouts are are kind of an art form. Mm-hmm. With these four by eights, when you look at the graphs, you'll see a red line, that's my heart rate, and I have a, a dotted straight line that shows you where my threshold heart rate is. And then power is represented with these, this heat graph. So any of you who ride on Zwift, you'll be very familiar with this. When you see it kind of orange or yellow, that means I'm, I'm right around my threshold. Uh, when you see dark red, that means I'm above threshold. If you see blue um, or green, that means I'm more down in, in zone one. Mm-hmm. So when I do four by eights, uh, my approach to it is, I want consistent power. So I want to be doing the same power on the last one that I'm doing on the first one. If I can't do that, I went too hard, abort. With heart rate, again, I set that rule. This time of year, I set that rule for myself. I don't really wanna be going more than a beat over my my threshold heart rate. And so what you'll see with my heart rate in this well-executed set of four by eights is the first interval, actually don't even hit my threshold heart rate. Mm -hmm. You're paying much more attention
0: to your power at that
1: point. Heart rate takes time to respond. It essentially has a delay. So if you're at the right intensity, heart rate's gonna be lower in that first interval. And I see a lot of people make the mistake of going, oh, uh, I'm doing this, both by heart rate and power, I need to get my heart rate right up to threshold in that first interval, which means they go and absolutely stomp themselves on the first interval, right? kind of blow up, and then the, the quality intervals go down from there. So I always just recognize that, no, I'm not actually gonna really see my threshold heart rate until the second interval. Mm-hmm. In the particular one that you'll see online, I actually didn't quite hit threshold heart rate on the second one. That's where I knew, okay, I'm actually a little stronger today, My power's a little bit low, so I actually made the decision on the next two. I just up my wattage about ten watts, and then you look at the last two. You'll see my heart rate comes up quite quickly, and then it just plateaus right at threshold. Yep. And I want to
0: right beneath that line that you're targeting.
1: Right. And I want to see that nice kind of flattening out of my heart rate. If you're doing threshold intervals, and you'd never really see heart rate level out. One of two things going on. Most likely you're just going too hard, but I do see with athletes who have really focused in on always going hard. They don't do a lot of aerobic work when they're, even when they're up near threshold, they're so reliant on anaerobic energy systems it's actually very hard for them to get their heart rate to plateau, so you'll always see a bit of that rise. Mm-hmm. But eventually, as you develop that aerobic system, what you want to see, when you, you look at a good time trial, it's a person with a really good, well-developed aerobic system, you just see that heart rate come up really quickly, and it just kind of levels out. When you look at the poorly executed ones, what you're gonna see is, first, um, it kind of ignore the, the first interval. There are a bunch of things happened here, and the first interval my trainer Kind of blew up on me for a little bit. <laughs> uh, All right. Ignore that first interval, but so you can the, ignore that. Yes.
0: But you're saying, yeah, no, you can, you, I mean, it's so obvious when you've turned it into this heat map, you've got much more red. You can see how your heart rate is, is crossing that threshold line that you don't want it to. So yeah, go and explain it a little bit, a little bit more, but yeah. for the, for the layperson, it's very obvious that this something went wrong here and you, there's only three attempts. So you, you, right. you gave up.
1: I was doing these on Zwift, and quick backstory, I was going up Alpe to Zwift. So Alpe Zwift. So they're, they're, they have a simulator of Alpe d'Huez. I was going up it. There was a guy just ahead of me who was going really hard, and I wanted to beat him. So I started ignoring all my rules mm-hmm. and just kind of lifted my tempo and started chasing him. And you'll see, you know, it's not like my power was all over the place. That second interval... I was relatively steady, but I was well over threshold. Mm-hmm. I was going too hard. And very quickly, the heart rate came up. By the, the third interval, um, you can see my heart rate was going way over threshold. My power was starting to come down. Right. And when I got to the fourth interval, I started and went, I screwed up. And I just stopped. Mm-hmm. So again, it, what, you don't look at this and go, oh my God, that's a horrible workout. They're just minor differences, but those minor differences are made the difference between a really good high quality workout and one where I couldn't do the fourth interval and And this is the art. Um, you can't just program some numbers into a trainer and, and end up with one or the other. you you know that first one that was well executed and the reason I put this one online is the fact that I did up my power. On the third or fourth and fourth interval, because I looked at my heart rate. I, I made an assessment of my rate of perceived exertion and said, you know what, I'm a little under, so let's raise it. But it was finding that perfect intensity that just takes practice. And that's really important because day to day, you need to adjust. You might do, I might do those four by eights at one wattage on um, Tuesday, and then the Friday, for whatever reasons, maybe I'm a little tired, maybe I didn't get some sleep, or maybe I'm having a really great day, I might need to raise that power a little bit or drop it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's why you have to use, how does it feel? What's your heart rate? Look at all these things to find that, that right intensity. Yeah, not being a
0: robot about these things is actually key. You have to make some decisions out on the road based on the
1: sensations you're gathering on that day. I have my athletes all the time, they'll email me and go, oh my God, that workout was incredible. Look at my power. Am I stronger now? And my response is always, let's see how the next intervals go. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, you have good days. And likewise, they'll email me and go, I, I was 20, 30 watts lower today. Is something wrong? And you just go, no, it's just today. You have to look for, for trends. You, you are stronger when every interval session, you're 20, 30 watts higher. Right this next question comes to us from our google voicemail and if you would like to leave a question for us on our google voicemail call 719-800-2112 so this is from david sampier and we'll play his question
2: hey guys how's it going my name is david sampier calling from sunny palm city florida and I just got accepted into dirty Kansas, which you know is pretty epic. And I'm down here in Florida. I've got the heat, uh, covered, but I'm wondering about the distance. I've never gone further than a hundred miles on the bike. And I'm wondering what kind of training I should do in the flatlands of Florida. I've got a lot of wind. Gravel is okay, but it's not crazy. And I'm, just curious what you guys suggest in terms of someone who does not have rolling hills and does not have crazy gravel and needs to get their butt in shape for the Dirty Kansas. Thanks.
0: Well, first of all, David, congratulations on getting accepted into Dirty Kansas. I will say, having done this race twice before and without trying to be too dramatic, it is a bike race. However, it will very likely redefine what you are capable of doing. Uh, It's such a fascinating uh, personal experiment in some ways. You push beyond a place you probably have never gone before, which is in itself fun, challenging, enlightening and then afterwards you may curse a little bit you may suffer immensely out there but you'll learn new things about yourself and then you can apply that to more races in the future other aspects of your life it's a it's an amazing thing so congratulations on getting in you're gonna have a really good time (laughs) and i laugh because you're gonna have a really good time and you're gonna hurt a lot out there too. It's inevitable. Everybody will. Everybody does. So, to get into the answer to your question about how to train for this, we actually did a very comprehensive episode back uh episode number 49. Check that out, but I I will will highlight some things here as well. There's, of course, different ways to skin the cat, as Trevor likes to say, when it comes to training for ultra endurance races like this. Logging lots of miles is, you know, basically a method you could take. Is that going to lead to the best result? Probably not. If you're a little bit more scientific, a little bit more structured with your approach, you'll probably, you know, more efficiently improve the performance on the day. So what does that mean? You've probably heard us talk about aerobic threshold before on the program, and that's a an Im- pretty important piece of the puzzle when it comes to training for these ultra-endurance races. It's uh, it's that level that at a race like that, a race of, say, 12 to 18 hours, you're going to be able to ride at that level for a, quite a long time. It's a pretty sustainable effort, assuming a, lo- a few things, assuming you're able to uh, fuel properly, hydrate properly, etc. How do you find your aerobic threshold? Well, that's a good question. That's something you can do in a laboratory setting out on the road, and Trevor might be able to, to jump in here. That's
1: significantly more uh, tricky to do it is a hard thing to find and actually there's research going on right now to figure out are there ways uh, to see if there are ways to to figure this out on the road um when i'm working it out for my athletes if, certainly if i can get them in the lab fantastic that's that is absolutely the best way otherwise it's a bit of an art form mm-hmm. and just looking at their long rides if you see them really fading towards the end of the ride then yeah, they were going too hard. They were above their aerobic threshold. The description of aerobic, if you were riding steady at aerobic threshold, it should be just slightly above comfortable. Like it should not be really hard. It shouldn't be sweet spot, like you're really pushing yourself. But at the same time, it shouldn't be that just completely easy conversational ride. It should just be above that. But you should, if you ask yourself, could I sustain this for three to five hours? Your answer should be yeah. I'll be a little tired at the end of that, but I could sustain it. Yeah. Uh, for For those who
0: will never get into a lab and aren't working with a coach, now I know we would we would encourage them to do so. But on an RPE scale, what what are they targeting here for aerobic threshold?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, everybody has a different perception of RPE. Yeah, sure. Uh, but on a one to ten scale, I'm thinking three, four. Okay. Okay.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to that episode 49, where, where Trevor and I dove quite deeply into the training here, I was the one that was doing the race. Trevor was coaching me through that experience. And so we got me, I I was able to get into the lab. I was able to find this aerobic threshold. And then a lot of the rides that I did were based around that particular um, threshold. What did these rides feel like? Well, if you're not used to doing these, at first, they're actually going to feel too easy. Right. If you continue to ride at that very consistent, steady temp, that pace, they're going to start to beat you up. And by the end of them, you're going to feel pretty fatigued. If you only did the ride for at that pace for for an hour, you know, you're going to be like, "Man, what this isn't going to get me ready for Dirty Kansas." If you do it for 5 hours, 6 hours or longer, you're going to feel pretty whooped at the at the end of those rides. And it's the accumulation of time at that level, not only within the ride, but within the context of the weeks and months leading up to the race itself where you build some of this Uh, resilience and durability, that really is the key to getting through a race like like Dirty Kanza.
1: Chris brings up a really good point that the experience of arriving at the aerobic threshold is very different for somebody who hasn't developed a good aerobic engine versus somebody who has. You take a top pro, let's say you have a, a 70 kilogram top pro, they are probably going to be close to 300 watts for their aerobic threshold. Mm-hmm. So if they go out and do a five, six-hour aerobic threshold ride, which is, again, doing that base miles, uh, Dr. Seiler zone one ride, mm-hmm. they're going to average 280, 300 watts for five, six hours. Right. A, a huge number, honestly, if, yeah. relative to what an amateur
0: should be thinking about in terms of and these rides.
1: Yeah. a pro will tell you, that's a good, challenging ride. Mm-hmm. Somebody has a very undeveloped aerobic system like because me. they've been, no, you actually have a, a decent aerobic system, but I'm talking about somebody who's spent their time doing nothing but hour rides. They tend to just do intervals or, or group training races. Mm-hmm. So they have a huge anaerobic capacity that they've been reliant on, but they haven't developed that aerobic system. They go out and if they're riding at their true aerobic threshold, at again, a 70 kilogram athlete, they might be down as low as 160, 170 watts. And I've worked with athletes who are are in that place, and when I have them go out and do an aerobic threshold ride their their first comment is, "I was going so slow, I thought I was going to fall over right right but what they're they then find surprising is as they work on it, as they do ride to the aerobic threshold, they'll come back to me and say, "Well, I did four or five hours and you know, it, it seemed really easy at first, but boy, did I feel it the next day. Mm-hmm. It's it's a different kind of feeling, especially when they're used to that one hour of tongue hanging out. Really rip myself apart. Right, and I think the the other
0: thing to to mention here is the gains that you see from these types of rides, these types of repeated rides, aren't going to take place overnight. You're going right. to have to accumulate time at this at this level. So just have some patience with it. Give it some time and you will see significant gains by the time you, you know, if you start your, your Kanza preparation now, by the time Dirty Kanza rolls around several months from now, you're going to be a different
1: rider. Yeah. Developing a true, truly powerful aerobics engine is measured in years. Yeah. Developing an ana- that anaerobic capacity is measured in weeks to months. Mm-hmm. Yep different scale. And that's why a lot of athletes really like to focus on that side, because you see improvements rapidly. Mm-hmm. You work in that aerobic engine, you can spend months and feel like you never got anywhere. Yeah. The the second big component that I'd like to
0: address when it comes to dirty cans of uh, preparation is the nutrition and fueling strategy component. It, it can't, I can't overstate how important it is. If you can't get the calories in your body or if you aren't able to hydrate properly out there, you will suffer immensely. With a proper fueling strategy, your day will be not only much, much more pleasant, the performance you are able to put out will be that much better. How do you work on that component? Well, again, if you're able to get into a lab, that can be very helpful in determining how you burn through calories, what type of engine you have, and what type of utilization of carbohydrates and fats you use to get through a day like this. If not, there's some experimentation you will want to do. Again, don't do this in the week preceding Dirty Kanza. Do this in the months, in years if you you have the time, leading up to a race like this. It's about experimenting with what types of food work well for your body, how many calories you can get in at per hour, um, doing it at the intensity level that you'll have on race day, and also considering the heat that you might face on race day. So there's a lot of things there that make it pretty challenging but it, again, can't be stressed enough how important this is. Trevor, do you have any thoughts on how people can really hone in on their target
1: fueling strategy for a race of this distance? It's exactly what you said. You have to experiment. You have to try If you're building for a, an event like this, you need to be going out and doing a few six, seven hour rides leading up to it. If longest ride you've done is three, four hours leading up to dirty Kansas, it's going to be a bit of a shock to the system. And on those rides, you need to experiment with fueling, um, particularly towards the end of the ride. Hopefully if you're doing hard enough, a six seven hour ride you're experiencing the issues with digestive system starting to break down starting to not work as well for you that's actually when you need to experiment with fueling and see what you can get down and my suggestion is look for simple things because i can guarantee you dirty Kansas, as you're getting into that second half of the race your digestive system's not going to be working well but you still have a long time you have to figure out how to fuel that body Yep. And it's, it's simple foods. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Uh,
0: One other thing that you mentioned about your, your training, David, was the wind down in Florida that you have. There's a, there's a high likelihood that in Kansas for Dirty Kansas, you will face some pretty stiff winds. You know, I think the natural tendency for most humans when dealing with the wind is to get really pissed off at it because it can be frustrating, especially if you're in a, eight, you're eight, 10 hours into a race, you turn a corner into a block headwind, and all you can see is five miles of dirt road over rolling hills, and you start to cry. I'm not saying this really happened to me, but maybe it did. It's tough out there. I think this is when mindset really can play a critical role. And you have winds that are challenging you down in Florida, so you can practice this. It sounds silly, but you do have to sort of embrace this challenge. You can't get frustrated and try to just mash the pedals even harder to get through that section because what the the last thing you want to do at Dirty Kanza is go into the red for too long a period of time and then just blow up. Keep in mind that everybody else on course is in the same situation as you. You're all fighting the wind. So as you very well know, Making alliances with people out there in the wind, sitting on wheels, is not going to hurt you in any way. It's only going to help you. You have to take advantage of the of the pack as much as possible. Get strung out there. You know you might be in a place where y- you're all alone. You can make a decision. You can sit up a little bit, maybe waste a little time, quote unquote. But you might end up being caught by a group of ten guys that. If you had just put your head down and charged through the wind by yourself, they were inevitably gonna catch you anyways. Now you're sitting up, saving some energy, working with them, you end up right in the same place you, you would have anyways with a little bit more energy, uh, a little more fuel in the tank. So it's tough, it's a, it's a mental challenge, but you have to stay positive out there.
1: Chris brings up a really good point. There, there are some people who just need to ride with other people. There are some people who like to ride solo. I am on the side of, I tend to prefer to ride solo, but even somebody like me in an event like Dirty Kansas, where you're really hurting, it can really help to find people. It Mm -hmm. can help to either, you know, you don't want to push too much above your limit to stay with a group, but it can certainly sometimes help to just slow down, wait for a group, and work with them. You're going to end up finishing better, and it's going to make it easier. I just had that experience two weeks ago where I was finishing up a a fourth day of a training camp. I was getting sick. I didn't know it at the time, and I was out in a group ride in Boulder doing a six-hour ride, and I was dying. Mm. And I was trying to get back to Boulder. The group had completely shattered. I was riding by myself and just went, i'm not sure i can do this final hour and <laughs> yeah. then four riders passed me mm-hmm. and i hopped on and they got me home yep it's a little savior
0: now i'm gonna i'm gonna pitch something to to the listeners but particularly david we do offer these fast labs performance experiences where you we get you into the lab we would be able to test you physiologically metabolically do bike fits do this this comprehensive testing. And the more I think about these camps, the more I feel like everyone as a cyclist could benefit from them, but particularly people that are interested in challenging them- themselves at these ultra distance events. the The fact that in a lab, you can pinpoint that aerobic threshold so much better than you can out on the road. And you can really dial in the nutrition component really makes me feel strongly that people involved in this gravel trend, gravel races being really long distance, a lot of them, six, seven, eight, twelve, sixteen, eighteen 12, 16, 18 hours, whatever it come t- turns out to be for you, could really benefit from a camp and an experience like this.
1: So this is a little specific to David, but I did want to throw this in since I actually used to live in a part of Florida, not too far away from him. He was concerned about the fact that Florida is pretty pancake flat and Dirty Kansas is not. It's much more rolling. So, A, there are advantages to Florida. I like going down doing long rides there because six hours in the saddle when you rarely stand up builds a certain type of stamina you can't get anywhere else. Uh, So, do understand you're going to have some assets here but quick recommendation to you. I actually used to do a ride from Pompano beach, almost up to where you live in Palm city and back right along the the waterfront. And there's a whole bunch of bridges on that route. Uh, it's a great route to go and hit. And as you're getting closer to the event, I would say, do that ride, go get a good five, six hours along the coast. And every time you hit one of those bridges, push over it, mm-hmm. get your legs used, because Dirty Kansas, a lot of those climbs, as I understand, are really steep. You're going to have to push over them hard.
0: Yeah, there's there's some steep ones out there. There's not that many that from a, a Coloradan's perspective are long. They just accumulate. It's, it's relentless. You know, you're getting close to 10,000 feet of climbing out there in a day.
1: So just simulate that by every time you hit one of those bridges, one of those little riders, risers, just push over it hit it hard. And if you do that for six hours, you're going to simulate some of that fatigue in your legs, legs that you're going to get a dirty cancer.
0: Excellent. Well, our next question comes from Jeremiah Bell from beautiful Anchorage, Alaska. He writes, Dear Fast Talk, when doing long zone one rides, and he's referring to zone one in the polarized model, Trevor's advice is to let power drop off late in the ride to keep heart rate in zone one, rather than keep power constant and allow cardiac drift to increase your heart rate into zone two. If I understand correctly, a major reason for cardiac drift is that the type one muscle fibers are getting damaged and the body is beginning to recruit type two fibers to pick up the slack. Doing rides like this can promote conversion of type two B fibers into type two A fibers. So it seems like cardiac drift is an indicator that my type 2 fibers are finally getting off the bench and being forced to do low-intensity aerobic work. Is that correct? As type 1 fibers get damaged, it seems like letting power drop off to prevent cardiac drift would let those type 2 fibers stay on the bench rather than forcing them to make up the difference for the fatiguing type 1 fibers. What am
1: I missing? Trevor? This is just kind of a good let's bring everything together question because mm-hmm. this we're we're gonna go back to some of the things we just talked about with Dirty Canzo. We're gonna yep. go back to some of the things that we talked about with our first question of the whole art of training. Uh, so getting to the art of training, my my answer here is I both agree and disagree. Mm-hmm. And it it really depends on the purpose and the timing. Uh, let me quickly address physiologically when he said, if you let your your power come down, are you letting the type 2 muscle fibers off the hook? Right. Not really. There's a certain point where when the type 1 fibers get fatigued, uh, they are your 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 muscles just naturally start cycling fibers mm-hmm. so even if you reduce the intensity you're going to start cycling in some of those those 2a fibers and use them and not as much as you would if you were keeping the the power up but remember that's not the only thing that's happening once you cross over that aerobic threshold a whole bunch of things change physiologically in your body so if you stay at that constant power uh and you start to fatigue um, and your heart rate comes up, you're actually going to start training in zone two, and it's just a different effect. Mm-hmm. So when I have an athlete in the base season, I tell them, I just want you to go out and do a good zone one ride. That's where I say, stay by heart rate, let the power drop, because this is where I'm a purist. And I'm actually going to reference back, we did that whole episode with Joe Friel where he talked about Way when you're far away from the season, you really want to focus on energy systems. You want to be a bit of a purist with your workout. Uh, As you get closer and closer to the season, you want to be more specific. So I look at this the same way. If it's December, January, I tell my athletes, we are trying to do pure aerobic work. I don't want to overstress you right now. So if cardiac drift starts kicking in, Go by heart rate. Let the power drop. Closer to the season, and this gets back to that whole dirty cansa thing, Chris can tell you I had him doing a lot of this when I had him doing aerobic threshold rides, so kind of high end of the, the zone one in the polarized model. Uh, I would say stick there for a while. Start to build some of that fatigue. And then not only would I say don't let the power drop, I would tell them, at the end of that ride, I want you to go hit a couple 30-minute climbs and and sweet spot them. Yeah. Push the intensity because that's simulating that difficulty you're going to have later in races. That's a really hard ride. It's a really powerful ride. I would not give it to my athletes in December. Mm-hmm. But getting closer to the season when I really want them to build that stamina, uh, going the other way and saying, okay, now that you've really fatigued your your type 1 fibers, let's really hit those two. F- type two fibers and force them to, to do some aerobic work. Yeah. And
0: it's at the end of those rides where you're Trevor's like, okay, now you, I'm I'm like the, the, the leash is off, go hit these a little bit harder and you wouldn't believe, I mean, you're going to, you're going to feel like, uh, you're going to feel that accumulation of fatigue you're gonna think, oh, it's gonna be easy to get into the sweet spot zone, zone two in this in this particular conversation, and that's about all you're gonna be able to do. You wouldn't yep. be able to go much harder than that, honestly, at that point. And if you've done the right the right type of riding,
1: a ride take it even further. A ride that I love to do is I'm getting ready for a big event where I know there's gonna be a long, hard stage. Uh, that's going to be a real struggle at the end. I have this ride that I do in Boulder that I love that you do about 11,000 feet of climbing. It takes me about six and a half, seven hours to do it. And at about the five and a half hour mark, I come through a town called Lyons and then you have Route 36 back to Boulder, which if anybody knows, it starts with a couple kind of kicker climbs. Mm -hmm. um, And then it's sort of flat with a few more little bumps coming into Boulder. And as soon as I turn onto that road... I try to, try to time trial it. Mm-hmm. And I try to hit each of those climbs above threshold. And it is just one of the hardest, most miserable experiences when your <laughs> legs are just cooked yeah. from 11,000 feet of climbing to do that. But it builds a tolerance that then when you get into the races and you're at the end of a five-hour stage and somebody's hitting you hard, you you can find it. You can dig that little bit deeper. But that's, again, going back to what Joe Friel talked about, that's the specificity versus the, the training, the energy systems on that ride. Am I, am I training just one energy system? No, I'm hitting every energy system in the, under the sun, trying to teach my body how to use them. So it's, that's a much more a race specific, almost even just training the mental side type ride. When I'm in the base, when I have my athletes just focusing on training, that's where I'm a little more of a purist and say, let's just stick with one, maybe two energy systems. Yep. And for those wanting to reference back
0: to the Joe Friel episode, we have two. Episode 66 was Demystifying Periodization, which is what Trevor was referring to mostly in this episode. We also have a great episode with him, episode 50, Unpacking the Gospel of Joe Friel's New Training Bible. So that's a great conversation with the uh, legend himself, Joe Friel. was episode 98 of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk@fastlabs.com at or call 719-800-2112 and leave us a voicemail. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The reviews are actually pretty important as they help other people find Fast Talk when they're searching on iTunes. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.